If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me in it to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, and I'll meet you there in just a few minutes. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us over the internet uh, or by our podcast. Politics, wherever people live, can be a very dangerous game, but there are parts of the world where it is especially so. About a year ago, some of you may remember this, about a year ago, Boris Nemtsov, a Russian statesman and politician who was opposed to the government of Vladimir Putin, was gunned down on a bridge in central Moscow near the Kremlin. It's a dangerous game. In November of last year, Luis Manuel Diaz, a regional opposition leader in Venezuela, was shot dead at a campaign rally. Politics can be a very dangerous game. On January 1st of this year, Gisela Motha was sworn into office as the mayor of a small city in Mexico. 24 hours later, she was shot dead for promising to help free the town from the grip of organized crime. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning in our ongoing series from the book of Mark called The Last Days of, of Jesus Christ... After years of insisting that people keep quiet about his identity and his true purpose, the time has come for Jesus' campaign, if you will, to go public. Jesus' political campaign for the throne of Israel goes on full display. And for those who had ears to hear, his campaign message was obvious. He is the king of Israel that, has been, that, that Israel has been expecting and waiting for and that the prophets have been prophesying about for over 500 years. But for those who are opposed to Jesus, his campaign message spelled personal and political disaster for them. And as many of you know, People with power normally don't give up their power easily. And as we open chapter 11 of the book of Mark, Jesus is headed to the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, where his political and religious opposition is the strongest. And the atmosphere in the city is thick with danger. Do you read with me from verse 1? Chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage, Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now stop there uh, for just a moment. Over and over in Mark's gospel, Mark has let us know that Jesus' main opposition is in Jerusalem. And to this point, Jesus has steered clear of Jerusalem. But now he's headed straight into the lion's den. This is going to be the last week of Jesus' life. Now, why does Mark make such a big deal about this colt? Actually, uh, a better translation is probably donkey. Why make such a big deal out of this? Well, you can't see it on the surface. 
But Jesus is making a very important declaration here. In fact, an Old Testament declaration. The prophet Zechariah, about 500 years before, had prophesied that when the Messiah, the king of Israel, entered Jerusalem, he would do so on a donkey, which was odd. Because that's not how kings normally entered a city. And so Jesus is declaring here that he's the very king that Zechariah was writing about so many years before. He is the rightful king of Israel. That's what he's declaring by this whole thing. And Mark understands that. He's saying, I'm the king. I'm the rightful king over this place. I'm the Messiah that you have been waiting for. And this donkey is one of the ways that I'm declaring that. It's odd, isn't it? A donkey? We'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, as we cover the rest of this, this is a very famous passage of Scripture that describes the, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we cover the rest of this famous passage, I want to cover it, uh, I want to look at it, I want to cover it under two headings. Two headings. Because I think that we see in this passage that there's a vast difference between the king that we want and the king that we need. Those are the two categories I want to look at this under. The king we want and the king we need. And I I want to show you what I'm talking about when I say that there's a vast difference between these two kings. The king we want and the king we need. Let's start with the king that we want. As Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you might think that with all of the opposition to him, that he would kind of lay low, that he'd try to fly under everybody's radar. But no, he goes for maximum impact. Look at verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! which means God save us, by the way, God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now this is a terribly, terribly dangerous move for a man who is claiming to be the rightful king of Israel because he's not only taking on the religious leaders in in Israel, he's also challenging the entire mighty Roman Empire. But this is what kings did. This is what kings did when they entered a city. And so Jesus is not shying away from it. Kings would ride in, the crowds would hail them as king, and that's what's happening here. And the people are actually, they recognize what's happening, because the people are actually quoting from a a, a psalm in the Old Testament. It was a coronation psalm, uh, Psalm 118. It was a psalm psalm declaring uh, the king. And, And when they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are the very words from Psalm 118. They recognize that Jesus is their king. They recognize that he's the Messiah. That's why they're lining the streets and shouting, Hosanna. It's why they mention David. In verse 10, they knew that the Messiah had to be a descendant of the ancient King David. And that because of foreign empires, David's throne has not been truly free for over 500 years. And so now at last, they get it. They recognize that the king is here. They think to liberate them from the mighty Roman Empire. All of these crowds 
shouting, Hosanna, the king is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a, it's a powerful, mighty uh, display of Jesus' kingship. Except one thing, one very important thing that you need to know. By the end of this week, these crowds that are so excited to follow Jesus evaporate. In just seven days, these people are nowhere to be found. Why? Why are these people that are just so excited about the king, why are they nowhere to find to be found. Because as Jesus has been making clear to his disciples since the end of chapter 8, he isn't going to liberate Israel politically. Not now. Not now. He will in the future, but not now. Instead, he's going to die on a Roman cross. And that just isn't what the crowds want from their king. The king they wanted is one who would deliver them from all of their problems in the Roman Empire, who would supply their needs, someone that they can cheer and praise for doing what they want in their lives, for meeting the demands that they make upon him. And I think, I think that if we were all honest here this morning with ourselves, I think we would all have to admit that if any of us had been there that day, that we would have been lining the streets just like they were, shouting for joy just like they were, because that's the king we want too. The king will do whatever we ask him to do. We want a king who will make us rich. We want, to make a, we want a king who will keep us healthy. We want a king who will keep our family members healthy. We want a king who won't let bad things happen to us, who will answer our prayers in just the way we pray them, when we pray them. But if he doesn't do those things, then what? Well, I would suggest that we're not all that different from the people in this text, are we? We, we? we lose faith in him. Some of us even stop believing in him altogether because that's not the king we want. Let me say it this way, just so that you can get it very specifically what I'm trying to, the point that I'm trying to get across because I don't want you to miss it. The king we want is subject to us. That's the king we want. We don't want to be subject to him. We want him to be subject to us. That's the kind of king that all of us want, isn't it? But as you're going to see, in God's great mercy and grace, he doesn't give us the king we want. Instead, he gives us the king we need. I want you to skip down to verse 12, if you will. Verse 12. The king that we need, that's what God gives us in his great mercy and grace. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this is, this is, kind, of an odd, this is kind of an odd little section of scripture. And on the surface, it kind of looks bad for Jesus, doesn't it? It looks petulant. Like he's hungry. It's morning. He's hungry. He's been sleeping all night. He wakes up. He's hungry. And he goes to this fig tree. And it doesn't have any figs on it. So he gets mad and he curses it. 
Um, I, I've, got, I've got three sons. Um, they're aged uh, 21, 19, and in a few weeks, 18. And I, they're always hungry. And I know what you think. You think that I'm using hyperbole when I say that they're always hungry. I'm not. They are always hungry. They eat constantly. Like when they're all home together, I want to tell you something. When they're all home together, we go through, you won't believe this, seven gallons of milk a week. Yeah, that's a gallon a day, people. That's expensive, man. That adds up. And that's with us that's with us limiting how much milk they can drink. Like we see them open the refrigerator and it's like, no, that's gold. Close it. Seven gallons of milk a week. And I've seen them, I've seen them stand, like they open up the refrigerator and I've seen them stand in front of the refrigerator packed with food with the door wide open, staring into the refrigerator for a long period of time, seriously, as if it had the answers to the deepest questions in life. And then they get angry and they say, there's never any food in this house. It's packed with food. And it kind of seems like that's what's happening here, doesn't it? Jesus is just angry and he's like, there's never any food around when I want it. Curse you, fig tree. That's not what's happening. Let me assure you. But to understand what's happening, we'll come back to this in just a moment, but to understand what's happening, we have to read ahead, and I'll come back in just a few moments. Look at what happens next in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus marches in to the very center of Israel's religious worship, and he blows it up. And in fact, that is actually what he's doing. He's blowing it up. Why? Why? What's happening here? Well, two very important things are happening here, each of which will point us to the king we need. Not the king we want, because we want a king who'll do whatever we want him to do when we want him to do it. Not going to be that king, but he's going to give us the king we need. And two things that are happening here point to that king that we actually need. And here's the first thing that's happening in this whole temple uh, thing here. Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of a hollow religiosity. Let me say that again. Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of a hollow religiosity. Notice he refers in verse 17, he refers to the temple, very last line, he calls it a den of robbers. Now a lot of people, and you may be, like you may be one of them, a lot of people think that this means that Jesus is clearing the temple so that he can purify it by driving the money changers out. How many of you have been taught that? Raise your hand. Okay, a whole bunch of you guys. And those of you up there in the balcony, have you never been to church before? Come on, seriously. How many of you have been taught that? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you back there. Thank you for raising your hands. Um, it's, like, it's like you've been taught that, that these money changers are turning the sacrificial system into a money-making business. And so Jesus is angry about that, and he's purifying the temple. But that is not what's happening here at all. A den of robbers is a place where robbers would run and hide for safety 
so that they wouldn't get caught and punished, right? Okay, so they'd go out, they'd commit a crime, and then they'd run to their secret den, usually in a cave, for safety. So when Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers, he is saying that the religious leaders are the robbers and that they've turned the temple into their den. Instead of being a place of teaching and worship and prayer, they go out and they commit crimes against the people of Israel. They'll rob widows. They'll commit acts of violence. They'll commit adultery, thinking that all they have to do is run back to the den, the temple, and offer the prescribed sacrifices, and then they'll be safe from God's judgment. That's what this is about. And Jesus says, this is just hollow religiosity. It's all empty. Like you're doing stuff. You're offering sacrifices. But all this is, is just religious busyness. It's empty. And it was busy, by the way. Let me tell you something. Over two million people would have passed through the temple courts in its heyday. Customers came from far and wide, and so they needed to exchange a currency, which meant an enormous amount of money was changing hands. Can you imagine the noise and the stench of the livestock that they were bringing for sacrifices? This was like Wall Street, an airport, and a huge livestock auction all rolled into one. But it's all empty, Jesus said. Oh, it's very busy. But it's just busy, hollow religiosity. There is no, listen to this word, there is no fruit. Does that ring a bell? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, just, just show me you're with me. Come on, does that ring a bell? Fruit, okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay, there is no fruit from all of their religiosity. That's what the fig tree was all about, you see. It was, it was, the fig tree was symbolic of the nation of Israel. Just as fig trees are supposed to produce fruit, so the nation of Israel had been redeemed by God in order to produce fruit. And by fruit, we mean life change. But Jesus says there is no life change as a result of Israel's worship. A whole lot of leaves, but no fruit. And of course, the religious leaders don't take this well because it threatened their authority and it threatened their position. As I said at the beginning, politics can be very dangerous. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed. A better translation would be shocked. The whole crowd was shocked at his teaching. I said this way back when we uh, started this series. Jesus will say things that you don't like hearing because he doesn't try to be politically correct. You will either, as a result of encountering Jesus, you will either want to crown him or you want to kill him, like the religious leaders here. But one thing is for sure. If you crown him, if you make him your king, if you subject yourself to him instead of wanting him to subject himself to you, Jesus is powerful enough, as Nathaniel said this morning in the worship, Jesus is powerful enough to change you. 
You will produce fruit because a relationship with him is not about empty religiosity. It is about a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He will change your priorities. He will change the way you see the world. He will change your relationships. He will change how you handle money. He will change the way men, under his rulership, treat women. He will change your anxiety. He will change your anger problem. He will change your racial biases. He will change your socioeconomic biases. He will change the way you think of beauty. He will change the way that you think about success and failure. He will change your desires. He will make you long for more of him uh, in your personal experience. He will change the way that you run your business. He will change the way that you see your place in this city so that you will begin to take personal responsibility for the city and for the world you live in. And he will do all of that because that's his goal in your redemption. A changed life, a fruitful life, not empty religiosity. So let me just say it like this. The king that we need is powerful enough to change us. He will change us as we submit our lives to him. Instead of demanding that he submit himself to us, he will change us. And here's a hard question that I want to ask you this morning. But no, please, know this, okay? I'm, I'm gonna, this is a hard question. It's, a, it's sort of a searching question. It's a piercing question. But I want you to know that I'm asking the same question uh, of myself. Asking myself the same thing. What are you practicing these days? Is it hollow religiosity? Or is it genuine, life-changing Christianity? Are you seeing change in your life? Are the people around you seeing change in your life. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to change you so that you can change the world that you live in. And if you're not seeing fruit in your life, perhaps this afternoon would be a good place and a good time to evaluate the state of your spiritual life. Because that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to change you. Now, don't go on a guilt trip here. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do. Don't go on a guilt trip here. Oh, you know, I'm not what I ought to be. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to go in and try to change because, oh, you have to, and Jesus will get angry at you if you don't. That's not what I'm wanting you to do. I want you to go evaluate your spiritual life this afternoon and ask yourself if you're seeing change, not because you feel guilty, but because you feel profound love for Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, something that no other king would have ever done. I want you to know that he loves you today. And therefore, as a result of what he did for you on the cross, you just want to, you want to give him your life. You want to change to become the person that he created you to be. That would be something that you could do this afternoon as part of your worship today. Okay, okay. He's challenging, you know, he's accusing them, the religious leaders, of a hollow religiosity. That's one thing that he does. The other reason that people are so shocked at what Jesus says in the temple, and oh, this is so cool. I gotta tell you, this is so cool. 
Jesus is rendering the temple obsolete. This is why he didn't go in there to purify the temple. Like he wasn't getting rid of the money changers so he could purify it and make it a better place for people to worship. No, he wasn't doing that because he's rendering the temple obsolete, which is blasphemy to the religious leaders. Now, Okay, in order for you to understand, are you guys still with me? Just, just, yeah, okay, good, okay. In order to understand why this was so shocking to the people that were following Jesus, I need to just take a minute uh, and I need to bring you up to speed on the background regarding Israel's temple, okay? Now, the history of the temple actually starts with the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden was, uh, it was a temple in a way. It was a sanctuary in which God dwelt with man. It was a paradise because God was there. But when human beings decided to disobey God's command there, they lost the sanctuary. They had to leave uh, the sanctuary. They had to leave it. They had to, they had to go out of it. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 says something very curious Um, I I didn't put it on the screen. You don't have to turn there. You can look at it later. But it says something very curious. It says that at the entry to the garden, God put a flaming sword at the entry to the garden. Have you ever read that in, in Genesis and wondered, what in the world is that? He put a flaming sword, turning every way, flashing back and forth, barring the way back in to the presence of God's sanctuary. Now, what's the significance of that flaming sword? Well, that sword is the sword of eternal justice. God is saying that because of human sin, we can't just pull a Britney Spears and say, oops, I did it again, sorry, and walk back into his presence. We can't do that. No, the wages of sin is death. You would have to go under the sword, to get back into God's presence, which, of course, you couldn't survive. So you could never get back into God's presence. And you ought to be hoping right now that I say, but. But, because God is gracious, He wanted to make a way for us to get back into his presence. And so he commands Israel to build a temple. And in the middle of the temple was a room called the Holy of Holies. We have a picture of that. Would you put that up on the on the screen for me? Yeah, this is a this right in the middle of the temple was a room called the Holy of Holies. And uh, you can see there that there's this veil that separates uh, the priest from the back section of the Holy of Holies. And that back section of the Holy of Holies was where the glory of God dwelt. And that veil was there to keep people away from the glory of God because they would die in his presence. Okay? And once a year, once a year, only one person, the high priest of Israel, could go in there And he could only go in there if he carried a blood sacrifice from an animal. Why the blood sacrifice? Because you can't go into the presence of God without someone, or in this case, something, an animal, going under the sword. This was a symbol 
You know, this was a symbol, you see. It was symbolic of the atoning work that had to happen for man to be able to dwell in the presence of God. But even with that, the question still remained, okay, how in the world can we get into the presence of God? In that case, it was just the high priest, like once a year, who could go in. But what about the rest of us? What about all of us? And no one could figure it out. Because they knew, if you go into the presence of God, you die. What about the rest of us? No one could figure this out. Nevertheless, the prophets in the Old Testament kept prophesying that someday the glory of God was going to cover the earth as the waters cover the bottom of the sea. But how? What about the sword? Well, tucked into the prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah once wrote this. He wrote, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He's writing about the Messiah here. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people. He was punished. Now see, that's what no one had understood. That the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, instead of wielding a sword and freeing Israel by overthrowing the mighty Roman government, what they didn't understand was that instead of wielding the sword, he would go under the sword and die for us. The sword of God's justice would fall upon the Messiah in the form of a Roman cross so that we could once again be in the presence of God. And by the way, when Jesus dies on the cross in Mark 15, uh, Mark is going to tell us uh, later on in, this, uh, in his gospel, that at the very moment Jesus dies on the cross, that veil that separated the priest from the glory of God in the temple, that veil in the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom by invisible hands symbolizing that the separation between man and God was no more. The people are shocked. The religious leaders are furious because Jesus is saying that because of him and what he will do, listen to me, the temple is obsolete. Just as he had cursed the fruitless fig tree and it would die, so Jesus had cursed the temple, the place that Israel took such pride in. In fact, they, they took such pride in it. We know from the other gospels that the disciples, I mean, like they were so proud of the temple that they thought, well, this could never be destroyed. They thought it was so glorious. It could never be destroyed. The temple was the place that the religious leaders, they put all their trust in. Jesus said that it will be destroyed. That the locus of salvation will now shift from the temple to Jesus and his death on the cross. And here's another, by the way. 35 years after Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed, 35 years later, the Roman government destroyed the temple so that all that remains today is the old wall of the temple. And it is never, the temple has never been rebuilt. But there's more. He went under the sword. He renders the temple obsolete, but there's more. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he sent the very glory of God that dwelt behind the veil. He sent that very glory of God, the Holy Spirit, 
to live inside of people who would believe in him. And so if you believe in him today, you actually become, the Bible says, a temple of the Holy Spirit in you. The presence of a God so powerful that he can shake mountains, so powerful that he can create the, word, uh, the world by his word only. That God dwells in you. And if you will continually submit your life to him over time, he can and he will change you in ways that you could never imagine today. That's how he brings about the change that he wants to bring in you. And you see, that's the king that we need. The king that we need is not only powerful enough to change us, but he's also humble enough to die for us. And incidentally, we saw this unusual combination of power and humility at the opening of this passage when the king of Israel comes into Jerusalem, not on a war horse like you would have expected a king to come in on, like every other king would come in on. He didn't come in on a war horse, but a colt. Remember how we said that's so odd? that Zechariah had promised that he would come in on a colt, a donkey. Zechariah was prophesying that in this king, there would be this magnificent combination of power and humility all in one person. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he declares that he is the king, when he goes into the temple and he says, this temple always pointed to me and now it's obsolete, he forces everyone's hand. He forces your hand. He forces my hand. You're either going to have to accept him or you're going to have to reject him. But one thing that you cannot do is say, wow, what an interesting guy. I think I'll go to him when I have a problem. No, you can't do that. You either have to center your life on him or you have to reject him. But there is no in between. Let me just suggest to you that that's the kind of king that we need. And not only is it the kind of king we need, but that's the kind of king that the world needs too. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? We almost cannot stand the news. It is so good. It is so powerful. We almost can't stand it. Our souls uh, cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the Messiah. You are the king, not only of Israel, but you are the king of the world. Lord, I pray that for every person in here, Every person here would make you the king of their lives. I recognize, Lord, that there are here people in this room today that have never understood that uh, what salvation is about, what a relationship with you is about, is what you did, is is that you came under the sword. It's not about what, what they do. It's not about their obedience. It's not about their goodness. It's about what you did and coming under the sword so that, so that they could dwell with God. 
and that God could dwell with them. Lord, for those people in the room this morning that have never come to a place where they have made you their king, their Messiah, their savior, their Lord, today, Lord, would you make it clear through the power of your spirit that it is, it's not about them. It, they may be very good people. They may be looking at all their goodness and saying, boy, I'm such a good person. I deserve a relationship with God. No, Lord, would you convict them that it's not about their goodness? And then there may be people here this morning that are saying, boy, I'm such a bad person. I've done so many bad things. God would never want me. Lord, would you convict them too? By the power of your spirit, would you just show them that it's not about them. It's about you. It's about what you did. You came under the sword on a Roman cross for them and for their sins too. And Lord, would you just bring these people to a place where they would make you their king today in this place, in this moment, on this day, in your name. And Lord, for the rest of us here, King Jesus, would you change us? Would you, Lord, would you change me? Don't let me practice a hollow religiosity. Don't let us as a church practice a hollow religiosity. Use us. Change us. Use us to change the city that we live in. Lord, I pray that every one of us would begin to take personal responsibility for the city that we live in. To change it. As we are transformed, as we are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship and pray. Amen. Would you look over here on the wall with me? And would you just say this with me? The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are practicing hollow religiosity and busyness. No, through a movement of people who are being transformed, changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the vision of City Church.